This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We release brand new episodes every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe to stay up to date. Now this week we're delving into the Roman psyche, or more specifically what we know about their belief in magic, superstitions and fear of the evil eye. And we'll look at the evidence for these at English heritage sites, including the discovery of some surprising objects thought to protect against bad luck. Joining us are English Heritage Curator of Collections, Cameron Moffat, and Francis McIntosh, who is Curator of Collections for Hadrian's Wall and the Northeast region. Hello to both of you. Thanks for coming on. Cameron, we'll start with you first. Uh, can you begin by explaining how the Romans' world and belief systems were different from our own? Well, there are three basic strands to human understanding of the world around us, magic, religion, and science. And 2,000 years ago, scientific thought was in its infancy, which meant that everything in the world was explained in terms of religion and magic. Okay. Pretty different to the way it is today, really. <laughs> yeah, but when we think of magic today, we think of it as a kind of entertainment, don't we? So what did it mean to the Romans? Yes, absolutely. Today we use the word magic mainly to refer to conjuring tricks. But in antiquity, it meant the art of influencing the course of events by the occult control of nature or of spirits. You might also try to influence events by making offerings to the gods, but magic was less of a commitment and possibly offered a better chance of success. In general, magic was a set of techniques that could be learned, but there was always the option of paying a professional to do it for you. This could be for services like casting a spell, making an amulet, cursing an enemy, exercising a ghost, or divining the future. You mentioned an amulet there. For people who don't know what that is, uh, what is an amulet? An amulet is an object that gives you magical protective properties by virtue of what it's made of or its iconography or, or things that we can't possibly know about, such as magical writing that was originally done on it, which hasn't survived, or indeed rituals, magic rituals said over it, invisible things to us now. So it might be something in our modern parlance, like a good luck charm. Maybe maybe you've got a lucky lucky pin or a lucky brooch or um, something like that, something that you wear. Yes. In general, they were things that you wear. There are a few cases where they, they are not worn, but in general they are worn. And there seemed as often as not to be an aspect of it being close to your body, on your body, that was useful for the efficaciousness of the amulet. It sounds as though that the Romans really intermeshed their beliefs in their own religions, belief in the gods, belief in spirits, magical powers, sort of invoking nature to your own ends, that sort of thing. Am I right in saying it's all sort of conjured up together in a way? Magic's just one part of all of these, what we now see as otherworldly beliefs. So you would have a god or a deity you could ask for help for with business deal or if you were poorly but there would also be magic spells related to all of those things as well so almost every aspect of your life as a roman or you know a romano british person could be affected by magic which is much more of a bespoke or individual thing compared to the religion and we know there must have been beliefs of magic in britain before the romans came 
but we don't have very much evidence of that. And when the Romans arrive, they just bring so much more material culture. They obviously bring the culture of writing, which is why we have so much more evidence for it. Mm. When they came to Britain, did they bring these varied beliefs with them when they arrived in 43 AD? Yes. I mean, I think some of their beliefs would have started to trickle over before the conquest through travellers such as merchants, starting off mainly in the southeast of England, where the contact with the Roman Empire started the earliest. But after that, the evidence is, is really very recognisable because people then tended to wear personal ornaments that showed their beliefs, mainly in the forms of different types of jewellery and decorative mounts, using protective symbols and images which were fixed to the harnesses of people's very valuable horses. What you believed tended to be what you wore on your lapel. And how did this belief in magic work alongside the Romans' other belief or ritual systems? Magic's just one kind of aspect of the Romans' belief system. You know, religion is a lot more organised, it's often a lot more public, it's perhaps done by groups or by priests in temples, whereas magic you could do yourself or you had a spell done um, maybe by a magical practitioner for you specifically. And it also kind of is in between all, you know, the religion and medicine. And quite often you will read in a text about some sort of medical cure that will have something that we might see as potentially science. But then also there's a spell as well to help that um, (laughs) that ailment. So it's really, it's all mixed up. It's not a really Mm. clear cut. it's It's not clear cut at all. The difference in magic and belief in religion and things it's it was just a part of everyday life in roman britain quite it's quite a great belief system really (laughs) if you want things to go your way you can sort of just pick and choose pick and mix yeah yeah you might try to cure your i don't know your fever with a potion or what we might see as a potion say from a doctor but then also you could get a spell as well at the same time or you know something that we would see as more magical you know you use both of them and who's to say which one actually made you feel better So how did people believe that magic worked in a practical sense? The majority of magic was protective in intention. Prevention is always the best policy, and it was easier to prevent yourself being cursed than to treat the effects of the curse after the fact. The image of the Medusa, whose look turned the viewer to stone, is a perfect example, and this was widely used on amulets and on buildings. There were magical formulae and incantations... The magical word abracadabra is very ancient, and this was used by the Romans to treat illness. Quite a lot of magic was believed to work through earthly spirits who existed on a plane between those of the gods and that of humans, and who might be influenced. We know from ancient sources of the doctrine of similars, in which like was used to treat like, and this can be seen in the many amulets made of animals' teeth drilled to be hung around the neck. These were used to treat tooth problems, particularly teething pains in children. Similarly, amulets in the shape of a pair of eyes were worn around the neck to heal or protect the eyes. That's really interesting. And I think that like cures like eventually found its way into sort of quasi-medicine, whether you believe it or not, into homeopathy in later centuries, didn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes. So that's really interesting. The Romans, as we know, kept written records. Are there any surviving texts from antiquity relating to magic itself? There are. The most famous are what are known as the Greek magical papyri. That's the name given to just a big group of papyri from Egypt, but from the Greco-Roman period. The materials date from about 100 to 400 AD. Lots of different manuscripts have been 
put under the same name and they're mostly written in ancient Greek and they're basically lots and lots and lots of spells and cantations and charms with all sorts of things in there and we also have other kind of individual authors or named authors who talk about specific things like Pliny who people are very often hear about him and he's a, seen as maybe as a natural historian and one of my favorite ones is Serena Simonicus and Cameron mentioned the fact about pierced animal teeth being used to cure teething but he has a paragraph about curing teething pains for babies and it says bind round your child's soft neck a horse's teeth the first teeth that fall out as a foal grows bigger or smear the child's tender gums with the brains of a pig or a hare or the snow white milk of shaggy she goats so that's in one paragraph what we would see as magic putting charm around your neck and then something that's much closer to kind of scientific medicine almost of smearing something on the child's gums and although i don't know would the brains of a pig be um helpful to a teething child nowadays almost all the teething remedies you have for children are to do with soothing that pain in the gums so you can see from the texts again that real blurred line between medicine magic and wider belief systems out of these surviving texts, are they all written sort of by Romans from Rome, Italy, modern day Italy, or are they written from various other sources around Europe, around the Roman Empire? They're quite often more from the Greek side, but Pliny, we know, was Italian. We also have some, what we would say, written records from Britain, the cursed tablets from Bath, which are very individual, magical, surviving writing. So the cursed tablets from Bath are the only written records we have in Britain to do with magic. Right, OK. Is there any other evidence for similar practices across Roman Britain, apart from those ones in Bath? Well, the Romans brought with them both literacy and this extensive material culture, which was more substantial than what had existed in Britain before. And, and it's usually in all this new stuff, which was spread across most of mainland Britain by the mechanism of a newly introduced market economy that we, we see the evidence of magic. Um, it can be seen in the widespread use of new iconography and new forms of jewelry, sometimes made of materials that might be magically significant in Roman belief, like amber. Francis has just mentioned the lead curse tablets from Bath, of which there are very many. We have seen magic texts scratched onto vessels, and there is even a voodoo doll from the Roman palace at Fishbourne, used for aggressive magic where you might inflict injuries on an image of your enemy, hoping to affect the person themselves. Of course, the phallus was the most used image in Roman magic. It was potent and protective and was almost a logo for the military, and that occurs on harness mounts as well as buildings. But as it was never part of the iconography of pre-Roman Britain, anywhere we see it, its use is Roman in origin. Why do you think the phallus was such a popular icon for protecting the wearer or the rider from ill? Well, I think it's because it's a sexual organ. This graphic image of the phallus, it's very eye-catching. It's very potent and powerful. And it is an aspect of the deified phallus, Phasinus. But I think it is simply its eye-catching nature that makes it so very useful in all these contexts. Were there also female genitalia objects that were created that had similar sort of protective powers? There were, yeah. So we would call them vulvate items. And they're nowhere near as common as the phallic items across Britain mm -hmm. and they tend to be a bit more stylistic 
in their nature, but we do have them, just not as often. I mean, it seems to me that there is a sort of a chronology here in that you have a lot of phalluses in the early period during the conquest when they're coming in on the uniforms, on the horse harness of soldiers and cavalrymen. And then after the conquest, you get the same kind of strategy where they are using an image of the genitals to be eye-catching. But maybe they are not, the users themselves are not military men, and therefore they're looking for something that's non-military, less aggressive, but still does the job. What do they think it protected against specifically? Well, the evil eye was the principal mechanism believed to be responsible for all the everyday tragedies. The evil eye was given by a person who had usually been born with the ability, an evil eye giver. And there are written accounts of people who did not realize that they were, were evil eye givers and could therefore give it unintentionally. You could even give it to yourself via a mirror. So the curse of the evil eye was transmitted by means of an envious sidelong look from the evil eye giver into the eye of the recipient. Envy was almost always the cause of the evil eye, and people really knew not to show off their lovely baby or brag about a bumper crop, as that was simply a foolish invitation to the evil eye. Is the evil eye then a superstition? Yes, the evil eye is a superstition, yes. Okay, how do we differentiate between magic and superstition then? Well, superstitions are beliefs of the kind that we might describe in the 21st century as irrational. And magic is a set of techniques and practices mainly used to protect an individual against the perceived negative effects of those superstitious beliefs. So it's two parts of the same thing in operation. So in order to have superstition, you need to have magic and vice versa. Mm. So you need magic to protect yourselves from the things that you are superstitious of. And then what about the gods? Do they come into this as well? Well, they're a whole other aspect of that really complicated belief system that the Romans had. Religion, belief, magic, superstition. It was just completely entrenched in life. So nowadays we might laugh at people who you know, have superstitious beliefs like not walking underneath a ladder. But it was just part of normal life in the Roman world. It wasn't something to be laughed at or, oh, you know, you're being a bit silly. Of course you can walk under that ladder. That won't bring you bad luck. It wasn't seen as something silly to the Roman world. There's so much more that they don't understand about how the world works, about how the body works. And so having this belief in superstition or uh, perhaps helps to explain some of these things that go wrong or things that you don't know how they work, etc., etc. So it's part of life in yeah. so much of a way that we just can't really, I don't think, comprehend. So kind of pseudoscience, but also the kind of thing that you should believe in if you want to continue your survival, really, and pass on your genes, this sort of thing. Mm. A, a survival tactic, really. We need to believe in oh, this yes. if we want to survive. Yeah. yeah, because you need to be able to believe in it to protect yourself against it in terms of magic and you know then for religion you need to be able to believe in the gods to ask them to protect you because religion in the roman period is very much contractual kind of set up mm. so you would perhaps say to mercury the god of trade i would like to be successful this year in I don't know, my business of selling phallic amulets along hadrian's wall um, <laughs> if i am successful i will make an offering to you and so mercury will have kept up his side of the bargain by making you successful so you have to either i don't know sacrifice a sheep or put up an altar it's very different to kind of modern religion or not mm. you know, the religious beliefs we maybe have today 
Were there any specific defences, protections against the evil eye? You mentioned amulets earlier, Cameron, which we were describing. Uh, mm. I presume they were among the tactics that you could use. Were there others? Well, yes, there are. And they are related to amulets in many respects. But a lot of the other means of protecting yourself are simply not recoverable to us all these thousands of years later or archaeologically. One really effective and popular way of protecting yourself against the evil eye is with gestures. And people in countries around the Mediterranean still employ these same gestures One of the gestures that was very popular as a a protection against the evil eye in the Roman period is called the manofica, the fig hand. And again, this employs images of genitals. And the way you make the fig hand looks exactly like a penis in a vagina. Um, And so people would make this symbol, this sign of the the manofica to protect themselves against somebody they thought might be sending them the evil eye. And then that image of the Manofiga gets incorporated into amulets. Ah, these gestures, you'd actually do that to someone who you felt was being hostile towards you? Yes, you would. I don't know if you've heard of the horn. The horn is another gesture that people still make, but you would make that gesture in that person's direction towards the evil eye giver. I don't think it was necessary for them to actually observe you doing it because I know that people... Nowadays, they quite often do it in their pockets. I've had people describe to me being on holiday in Mediterranean countries and they will, something strange will happen. They'll suddenly notice that all the gentlemen are fiddling around in their pockets, making hand gestures really? to protect themselves against the evil eye. So, so maybe you didn't have to be observed making that gesture. And of course, these days, I suppose there are a few hands gestures that you can use. Probably a lot of the hand gestures we use are maybe more aggressive compared to protective. So the Manufica and the amulets, they're protecting you from something that's coming towards you. Our hand gestures are kind of almost in anger or annoyance to project back out. But yeah, they're coming from a very similar place in that that hand gesture is going to do something, whether it's keeping you safe or wishing ill on someone else. And were all these gestures used in Roman Britain for the sort of 400 odd years that the Romans were here? Well, I think it is extremely likely. Yeah, there's no reason to suggest that they wouldn't. The Magnifica gesture must have been understood because we have it on objects that are found in Roman Britain. So someone must have understood that gesture to then make it into an amulet or a mount on a belt. There's so much that we don't know. We have lots of very small, lovely glass vessels that we often get called unguentaria, and quite often they're seen as having precious oils or perfumes in, but they could equally have been used to, you know, to mix potions. Mm. Francis, you and I last spoke about Hadrian's Wall and Chester's Fort. We talked about some of the discoveries that were made in that area, but have there been other discoveries made along the wall? It's a very long wall, obviously, that give us an idea about Roman beliefs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So English Heritage obviously looks after four big sites along the wall, as well as lots of the turrets and the mile castles. But from the four main sites, we've got evidence, some of which, you know, we've talked about before. So lots of the vulvate mounts and the phallic mounts. We know, Cameron's uh, mentioned it there, it's not just people who could be cursed, but horses as well. Mm. And we have at Chester's, which is the cavalry fort, we've got phallic pendants and mounts that seem to have come from horse harness rather than from soldiers dress we've got 
at Chester's as well, an openwork mount that is one half of a mount that said Utera Felix, which is use well or be lucky when you use this. Ah. And I think this is a really nice example of the Romans didn't really think of luck as something that they had no control over. There's multiple deities or gods linking to luck. So there's Fortuna, the goddess, or there's the god Bonus Aventus. So for us, quite often we'll say to someone, oh, good luck. And it's a little bit of a throwaway remark or, you know, a platitude. But the Romans thought they could affect and alter their luck by either offering to deities or wearing or using things that have got the right phrases on. And this Mount Utera Felix is in silver. It would have been very visible on that soldier's dress. And so it would have projected, as Cameron says, the Romans wore their beliefs, whether that's beliefs in gods or in the magic. And, you know, you've got things from all aspects of life. At Corbridge, we have an absolutely beautiful 4th century gold fingering, which is in Greek. It's got a Greek inscription and it translated as the love charm of Polemius. Ah, right. And a very kind of, you know, you could just say, oh, it's, it's a love charm. Either he's made it and it's he gives it to, say, his lover, or is it he's using it to give him look in love? Did he have to say out the love charm as he was wearing it in order to bring him look in love? You know, is it part of a ritual? It's a very large ring. And if it was worn, a um, man with very, very large hands, or you know, whether <laughs> it, was, it was hung around the neck. But there's things that, the more you look at them, the kind of the more layers of the Romans' belief systems can yes. be unpicked. Yes, very much so. I think um, people will also probably relate to the wearing of slogans or tattoos or rings with names or anniversaries in and, th- and this sort of thing. I think we can all identify with that as modern people, can't we? Absolutely. And, you know, people of all sorts of religions nowadays will wear, you know, you might wear a cross around your neck or... If you're traveling, you might have a St. Christopher pendant. And the Romans felt by keeping things on them, as Cameron says, or by marking their building or their horses, who, you know, they only need to protect from curses. You wear these things to both tell the world, but also, you know, the bad things in the world to keep away and mm, um, Absolutely. Or you, you. you might wear a crystal to sort of ward off evil spirits, if you believe in that. Or you might be wearing your grandmother's now deceased wedding ring because you had a great relationship with her and you believe that she's always with you. You might yeah. always have this sort of thing going on in the modern world as well, mightn't you? Yeah, there's a, there can be a lot of comparisons. We maybe don't take things as seriously as mm. the Romans, because I think to the Romans so much in the world was unexplained that by wearing something with a the correct phrase on it or something with an image that invoked luck or protection it was very important to them we might have things like you say you know maybe a bracelet that you bought on holiday and it's exotic but it reminds you of your holiday whereas the Romans might wear something Cameron mentioned amber and as soon as something's exotic it gets given more power in the Roman period Mm, I can imagine. Cameron, I, I, I gather you've done some research on amulets from Roxeter in Shropshire, which was the fourth largest city in Roman Britain at the time. Mm. Uh, what kind of amulets were there? What do they tell us? Well, we've talked a lot about one of the main types, which are the amulets that deploy sexual images in their iconography. So there are other amulets that are operating on the same principle, the principle being that the evil eye is looking for ingress 
through an eye. It's looking for the eye of a recipient. And what you want to do is provide things that will catch the evil eye, that will deflect the evil eye and make it go somewhere other than your own eye. So there are a large number of amulets that are essentially decoy eyes. We have one group of amulets that is over 100 pieces of wall plaster that has simply fallen off the walls in the Roman period. And people have gone and looked amongst the fallen bits of wall plaster looking for pieces that already are in the shape of an eye. So we have a very large collection of these, and they come in a full range of sizes, and many of them are quite small. And they're obviously ones that were specifically for children. And Mm -hmm. there are also a number of, again, the harness mounts to protect the expensive horses that also look like an eye. So there are all these decoys that you can deploy to try and catch the evil eye. Were these sort of the budget kind of plaster evil eyes because obviously the other ones would be a lot more sort of ornate and made of precious metals wouldn't they yes these are free there are many types of amulet that were effectively free for example just to go back to what we were talking about before francis was talking about all these aspects of of amulets and magic that are so hard and even impossible to recover I found out recently that, well, in fact, Pliny says that the plant rue is an extremely effective amulet to hang around your neck to protect against the evil eye. And I was very interested to read that rue is a plant that was introduced by the Romans into Britain. And you feel that there has to be a link there. Yes. How do you spell that, by the way, that plant? Rue, R-U-E. R-U-E. Okay. What does it look like? It's not very exciting looking. I, I, I wonder if it's the smell. It does have kind of a distinctive smell. Very interesting. We know, of course, that the Romans were in Britain for about 400 years. So did their magical practices evolve over this period? Their beliefs, their superstitions, did they change much? Yes, because we've seen that the phallus was so popular in that early period when the conquest is ongoing and there are lots of military people around. And then that eases away in terms of its popularity to be replaced by, to a small extent, the images of female genitals. Jet became very popular in the 3rd and early 4th centuries for magical protection for pregnant women. But we see that this really falls off in the latter part of the 4th century for the simple reason that Christianity is becoming increasingly popular and it has made the official religion of the Roman Empire. Mm. The use of charms and amulets was a pagan practice and was banned by the church and these things pretty much disappear. Right, so I suppose all the jewellery makers went out of business, did they? You start to get jewellery with Christian motifs on it. Chester's Mm. fort, we've got... uh, beautiful jet ring so jet that material that had so much association as Cameron says with magic and female medicine and we have a fingering that's inscribed with a Cairo you know that very classically Christian symbol mm. so if you want to keep working you make sure you know your market don't you and so they'd start making jewelry and other things for their new market but that's also a nice example of that change in time because amber, which is fossilised resin of coniferous trees, although it's much scarcer than jet in Roman Britain, it seems to be much more popular in the first and second century 
but it has very much seems to have an importance in kind of magical beliefs and some of that is to do with its materiality or what mm. it feels like so it's got very poor conductivity so it feels warm when you're in a warm place or it feels cold in a cold place and it's electrostatic so when you rub it it gets a charge you know similar to if you rub a balloon on your head it makes your head your hair stick up mm. and so all these kind of material properties are really key in why amber was seen as um, having magical properties it was exotic so it's a luxury item it's, it's quite rare and it, amber and jet they're both things that or materials that were given or seen as having magical properties because of you know their materiality and it then they were carved into maybe specific shapes but just the material jet or the material amber are kind of magical in themselves. Is there a lot that we don't know about Roman superstition, magic and belief systems to do with some of these materials than we do know? It sounds like there's not a huge amount of evidence, but there's enough for us to sort of build a a fairly good picture, but we don't have the fullest possible picture. What would you both say? Well, that's archaeology for you, really. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is absolutely fair to say, but I have certainly come away from my research with the distinct impression that when these classical superstitions and beliefs in magic were imported over here, that they went down very well and they rapidly became embedded in the British population. What do you think, Francis? I agree. I think... You can read, you know, the texts that come from Roman Egypt or the classical sources from, you know, the Mediterranean areas. And you can say on one hand, well, we don't know exactly that that happened in Britain. You know, that's however many thousands of miles away. But once you start to understand more about the belief system of superstition and we know what sort of materials or what symbols were important in those beliefs, you see evidence for that on our sites across the country And you can start to, you know, it might be that you have to take a bit of a step. And it's not that, you know, we we didn't find a bit of papyrus at Housesteads that said, I use this piece of amber to carry out this spell to protect me from this illness. But we know that amber was seen as magical and as having important properties. And so by the discovery of amber at Housesteads, you know, north northwestern edge of the Roman Empire, Mm. we can extrapolate that these belief systems did travel and in Roman Britain people did believe in this this magic and have these superstitious beliefs. Yes and travel to the farthest reaches very much the perimeter of the Roman Empire in the in the furthest northern part. Lastly then for both of you what, what do you think these beliefs in magic superstition and these sorts of things say about human nature in general? I'll just jump in. I I would say first that that human beings are always looking to understand the reasons why the world is the way it is. But in different periods, we've had different knowledge bases from which to work and so have arrived at different answers. Secondly, that we really want explanations for the bad things that happen to us. And it seems almost instinctive to blame life's woes on other people rather than random accident. By using magic, we can attempt to protect ourselves against the actions of others. Exactly. We want to understand why the world is how it is, how we can play our part in the world and how we can make our way in the best possible way through the world and how we can save ourselves from strife and grief. And if you believe in a God, 
then you can ask that God for help in this instance. Or if you believe that there is the evil eye, that would explain why there are bad things. But then it means that you have something you can do to protect yourself from that evil eye. Mm. Whereas if it's just completely random bad luck, you're not going to have any control over maybe what happens in your life. And people don't like that. So about control and effectively about staying alive and I suppose staying healthy, staying well. Yep, yeah, but if they believe in magic and you know have these superstitions, it means that they might be able to stop some of these bad things and they might be able to keep themselves healthy if they do the right thing by wearing that certain amulet or saying that spell or making an offering to a god. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're getting to know St. Aelred, one of the 12th century's most loved and influential churchmen. People are flocking to Revo to become monks from across Europe. It's thanks to Aelred that the name of Revo was familiar to the royal courts of England, Scotland and France, and also to the papal court in Rome. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>